All right, well, we are going through 2 Timothy, so turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, and the title is Remember the Eternal. Paul's exhorting young Timothy to be faithful, to be steadfast, and that call that's upon his life to use the gifts that he's been given according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And that he should follow the example that Paul's left behind. Others are, are fleeing. Others are walking away and departing. But Timothy, you remain steadfast. Don't be moved off of your mark. And so as he writes about that in this chapter, we're not going to get to it this morning, but just for the sake of context to see what's coming, you see in verses 16 and 17, there were two individuals that were actually spreading false doctrine concerning the resurrection. And so this is something that he's wanting Timothy to deal with. Never fun to have to deal with those types of issues and confront people that you know and I'm sure they had a relationship with. But Paul's going to exhort Timothy to deal with them and the things that they are saying. So we begin here by remembering the eternal. Because as you keep that focus of what really matters and what is going to last forever and what are the priorities of the kingdom it helps us to know what to invest in and where our time should go so as we look at verses 8 and 9 and actually we'll read down to verse 10 and then we'll come back and read verses 11 and 13 when we get to that section so let's read these verses together remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Remember the resurrection, Timothy. Remember this one thing, that Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of David, he was raised from the dead. And this is the message that we preach The resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I don't think that Paul's trying to lay out some uh, complete doctrine about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, although we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about it. I think Paul's main point here is just to, to reach out and to touch something that Timothy knew was significant and important, and he draws that into the exhortation for him to be faithful and to be found steadfast, to be willing to endure all things, to not shrink back. He's trying to show him, Timothy, what we're involved in, it matters. It's weighty. It's significant. And he refers to Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? He's that one that was promised to Eve in the garden, that there would be a seed that would, would come from her, that would eventually reverse the curse that happened there in the garden and and set things straight and redeem mankind. And of course, Seth was born, but that wasn't the seed. And then eventually Noah came and he wasn't the one. And through the sons and all the way to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and to King David, the weight and the promise for this seed to come was in their thinking. It was in their anticipation. It was the great hope of the world, but became specifically the hope of the nation of Israel. And he is referencing that Jesus, the Messiah, the seed of David, to King David, that young shepherd boy that took on Goliath and defeated him, to him was given the promise that there would come from him a descendant that would always sit upon the throne of Israel and would rule and reign forever and ever. 
That seed is realized and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's reminding him of this great history of what we're associated with. When, when you read the word seed, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it has a whole history. It's the whole Old Testament compacted, if you will, into this one word. Because it was the hope that was seen over and over again. Israel waiting for the promised Messiah, the seed of David, to come. And, of course, he did come and he was put to death. But death could not hold him. Death did not keep him down. He rose from the dead. And this is the message that he says, I want you to remember this. I want you to, to have this in your mind, what you are associated with. It's not some insignificant matter. It's a weighty matter. It is the most important stuff you will ever touch or handle or think or invest your life in, Timothy. It's the gospel. It's my gospel. I hope you have that sense of this message, like this is mine. I mean, I didn't create it, I didn't write it, I didn't, you know, go act it out, but this message which has come to, to me, has been presented to me, it's mine. We should all feel comfortable saying, my gospel. Well, what is your gospel? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I am so connected with it that I can't just say gospel, I've gotta say, it's mine. It is my gospel. This is what I cling to. It's what I hold to. This is what makes me tick. This is what makes me have hope. This is what causes me to, to make the sacrifices that I do. And so remember that Jesus, the Christ, that he was raised from the dead. Paul picks up this subject in more detail, the resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to put it up on the screen, but if you're not familiar with this passage, I would encourage you to make your way over to it in your Bible and find it, because it's an important passage. It's one of these passages that all of us be able, ought to be able to, you know, thumb through and find it, because Paul's going to talk about, again, those that were saying that the resurrection doesn't matter, that it really, there is no hope for the dead, and he's going to, he's going to write about that. He's going to confront that issue. So in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is, all empty, is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. We're liars. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, other Christians in Christ, they've perished. They're not risen from the dead, right? If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all, mo all men the most pitiable. But here's the thing. That is what we have hope in, in this life. We, there's nothing else. We're not looking for Jesus and something else to save us. That's probably not the right kind of illustration, but I just, in my mind, I'm just thinking about when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, which is a reliable, trustworthy um, uh, belief, but in one sense, it's like we're just pushing all the chips into the center of the table and saying, I'm all in on Jesus. I believe completely 
that he is the Messiah, he is the seed, that he did die, that he did rise from the dead, and that by putting my faith and trust in him, all of my sins will be atoned for and cleansed, and when I die, I will go and I will be with him. I am all in on Jesus. That's my gospel. And I pray that that's what, what it is for you too. That there's not like, well, okay, you know, I, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of into the gospel and I'm kind of into Jesus, but I think there's some other ways out there. You don't get that opportunity, nor do I. We either are full on in for Jesus Christ or we are, we're, we're doing something else. But it's a complete sellout when we follow Christ. It's reckless abandon, except it's not reckless at all. It's the most reasonable it's the safest thing you can do. But it's that kind of mentality that we're not measuring our commitment, saying, well, I'll go like 75% in for Jesus. No, we in this world only have one hope, and it's Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And that my faith in him will access the grace I need to find the forgiveness of the Lord. That's it. This is what Paul's saying. So when he says, remember that Jesus was raised from the dead, there's a lot to remember. Remember that's where, it's a statement that God accepted Jesus and his sacrifice. Because if he didn't, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't accept Jesus. If he didn't accept Jesus, then we are still guilty for our sin. And Jesus is, is not risen from the dead. You know, this is not an negotiable of the faith. Organ in church, Guitar in church, doesn't matter. Does not matter. Pick your instrument. Instruments, no instrument, doesn't matter. Bulletin, no bulletin, doesn't matter. You know, pews, chairs, it doesn't matter. You know, hymnals, choruses, doesn't matter. What matters are some key doctrines of the faith. And one of them, the central doctrine of the Christian faith, is the resurrection. So this idea that says, and you will meet some like this, and they will say, listen, I mean, I know for you, you believe that, the, that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead, and that's great. And if that's what you believe happened, then that's your truth. No, it's my gospel, but it's not me making up my own truth, picking and choosing. It is the truth. And Jesus did rise from the dead. And so the resurrection, listen to this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead does not find significance in my belief. It is significant. My affirmation that Jesus rose from the dead does not make it a truth. It is the truth. And I'm either clinging to it and holding to it, or I'm not. So the person who says, well, I, you know, I like the gospel and I like the you know, Christian faith more than any other. I'm just not sure if I really believe that Jesus you know, rose from the dead. Then you're not a Christian. And you have no contact of significance with the gospel. I mean, can you hear what Paul's saying? You and I would, should be pitied more than anybody else on planet Earth if we're believing in a dead guy to give us eternal life. We're, we're singing songs about forgiveness of sin to a guy who was judged for sin. And so we have this all-in mentality where I believe it. And you know what? I love what the scriptures say. Those who put their faith in him will not be put to shame. In that last day, when you stand before the Lord, you will see Jesus risen from the dead. And you will be welcomed into heaven because of that faith and trust that you have placed in him. So that's more about the doctrine of the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection. But again, in the context, Paul's just trying to say, this is what you're a part of. 
Timothy, remember what you're a part of, the, the Messiah, the seed of David. He rose from the dead. This is heavy, heavy, weighty stuff. And, and it's the idea of if you were to put it on a scale, you know, and you have, uh, you know, an empty scale, and you put, you know, a hardship here and a trial there and a rejection here and people not wanting to be around you any longer or do business with you because you're a Christian and you're a follower of Jesus and, and they don't want anything to do with you and the scales are just, man, they're on the, on the table full of all of these heavy things. But, you know, you come and you put the resurrection and the faith in Jesus Christ on the other side of the scale, and the scales just go boom. It's like there's nothing even on the other side. Paul put it this way, Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's no comparison. Timothy, you are dealing with holy and high stuff, and so are you. You're an ambassador of Christ. This is your gospel. This is your salvation. This is the faith that you are in. And so this gives us the necessary motivation to follow out the commands to follow Jesus. Now Paul is speaking to Timothy in the context of ministry, as we've said. Be faithful. Be a good steward of the gift that's been given to you. But I, but I want to apply this in just our general walk with the Lord. Because these same motivations can be found there in your walk with Jesus. Am I going to be faithful to him? Am I going to make the, you know, uh, the commandments and his will for my life my priority? Or am I going to allow a lot of other things to come in? Because, the, the, again, think of all that's been placed within you. We're talking about eternal life. The issues of the kingdom. This is what, what really matters. And it should just cause those scales to just slam to the ground be, because of all the weight and the value that is found in them. We move on in verse 9, and he talks about how the gospel is not chained. He says, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. You know, they, 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 they had this man named Paul, a Roman citizen, <clears throat> Wherever or where he went, he preached the gospel. And people were turning away from false gods. They were turning away from temples. As a matter of fact, his ministry was so effective in some towns that the cell of idols went down. And it made the idol makers angry and mad. People were getting saved as such great numbers that their sales were dipping. And they were seeing that there was another faith. There was another one that was being worshipped. And they didn't like this, and they brought accusation, and they stirred up strife and, and a riot. He was time and time again thrown into prison, beaten with rods. He went through sleeplessness. He went through troubles. He was robbed. He, I mean, all kinds of difficulties he faced because of this gospel. And Rome looked at him and said, we need to put this guy in jail. If we put him in jail, we can stop the spread of the gospel. How did that work out for them? Not at all. Why? Because the gospel cannot be chained. You can't stop the word of God. You can't stop the message of Jesus Christ. I mean, look, just think about what's happening throughout history, but even in the world today. A place where they try and have, have stopped the spread of the gospel in China. How has that worked out for them? The, the underground church has grown like crazy. That, you know, among many of the Muslim nations, 
They've tried to stop the belief in Jesus Christ and not allow any conversions. So the Lord just gives a bunch of people dreams. And they come to realize on their own that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. You can't stop the gospel. And it can't be stopped in your life either. That is, it coming through your life and going to other people. It can't be stopped. Well, but my sickness. Sickness cannot stop the gospel. It doesn't chain it. Well, my circumstances and all the troubles and all the pressures that have come upon me, the, the, the responsibilities they have at work, that cannot stop it. Don't let it stop it. The only thing that can stop the spread of the gospel through your life is you, is me. It's us. When we choose to become silent, when we choose to get you know, preoccupied with all this stuff over here and all of our time and energy and effort goes into that so that when it comes time for the spread of the gospel, we're wiped out. We have nothing left for the kingdom of God because we're so involved in everything else. That, that will stop the, the spread of the gospel through your life, but the gospel is still going to keep going. The Lord will find somebody else, won't he? He'll raise somebody else up that he can proclaim the truth through. And, you know, historically, this is what we've seen with the church. The church began there in, um, in Jerusalem, but then the headquarters moved up into Antioch. And as you follow through church history, you can see it moving to different places on the, around the globe. Sometimes it was in the east. Sometimes it was in the west. And, and, and the gospel was, was having a profound impact in that area, and the gospel would go out from there. But when the gospel began to be, you know, mired down with other stuff and the church lost her focus the Lord would just light another lampstand somewhere else and he would raise up that church and he would work and move and you know we can look historically and it's like you know not many would argue with the fact that in in recent years um, you know recent you know 100 years or so that the gospel has had a primary you know uh, influence within the United States and has gone out the center of many missionaries and um, supporting of many missionaries and many efforts around the world. And I, I think this may be one of the reasons why we have had such a blessed experience as a nation is because of the work of evangelism and mission work that the church has done. But you know, if the church in America doesn't want the job, the Lord will find somebody else. You know why? Because the gospel can't be chained. It can't be stopped. So if it's not going to, I mean, you can look back in, in the history of, of uh, Great Britain and all the great missionaries that were raised up. Or you can go back and think of, you know, Switzerland or you think of Germany. Uh, different times in which God raised up people and he used them. But when, when God wanted to do new, a, a new work, if that group of people was not ready, he would simply go find a new wineskin and he would pour his new work into them. But you know what? I want to be one of those wineskins that keeps on getting renewed over and over and over again. And I want the, the new work of the Lord to continue to come into my life and work through my life. So I'm the only thing that can stop the Word of God. I mean, look at this. Let's put Paul in jail. That way, he can't influence people anymore. And here we are in 2021 reading his words being influenced by him right now. Showing you that it can't be stopped. So you might be looking at your, your health. You might be looking at your job. You might be looking at circumstances of your life, relationships. Or maybe you even look at your past life before Christ. And you're saying, God can't use me because I lived my life. That is not true. We're reading about a guy who was in charge of persecuting the church and killing people. 
And God raised that man up to be the primary voice in his day. So may we find great comfort <clears throat> in this, is that even if there is suffering and trouble that would come and it would cause limitations, understand that the word of God is not limited by those things. Was the Lord limited when the nation of Israel had the Egyptian army pressing down on them from one side and was, had the Red Sea in front of them? Was that a limiter? No, it wasn't a problem for God. He just parted the Red Sea, that's all. How about when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den? You know, these things would have been left hungry. They would have been at the point that, you know, before he would hit the ground, that they would have, what happened to all of his accusers eventually, would have torn him apart. But instead, he just had like this private zoo tour, being able to pet all the animals, right? I mean, just was able to hang out with the lions in there. That wasn't a limiter. That was an opportunity. It impacted people. It impacted the king. And we can go through experience after experience. Was being thrown in the fire a limiter? Well, I mean, that certainly can be a, a, you know, a, a problem. But for God, it's not a problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they went into the fire and they simply did not burn. Where's the limiter? There's nothing that the world can form or that Satan can conspire to stop the gospel that will work. I mean, if you're like, I don't know, Christianity is kind of boring. Well, why don't you get on the gospel side of it and go with it and watch all the opposition that comes against it and watch how God stands up and shows up and works through your life and the others' lives to make certain that the gospel keeps on going. I am not trying to make a political statement here. I know some of you are going to take it like that, but that's okay. You just need to, like, wind down a little bit, all right? COVID, Republican, Democrat, you know, White House, Richmond, none of that stuff is going to stop the spread of the gospel. You do know that, right? Now, we may look at these things and say, well, as a country, we've had these freedoms and these liberties and these things have happened. Yes, let's thank the Lord for it. Be a responsible citizen. Get out there and do what you should do. You find and you seek the Lord on, in your citizenship. Be responsible, Okay. Be a good steward of this citizenship. That's what I would say to you on that side of it. But at the end of the day, whatever happens, it doesn't impact this. Because God is on the throne. And, you know, everything we know uh, that we think is, is precious and, 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 you know, has enabled the church to, to grow and flourish, okay, fine. God uses all kinds of different things. But God also uses persecution to grow the church. How about that? I don't want it. I'm, I am not the pastor that says, please bring on persecution. I'm not that guy. I'm like, Lord, do whatever you think is best. That's where I am with it. You know, I think sometimes people are like, well, we need the persecution. Are you thinking about what your family is going to go through? Are you thinking about those scenarios that you're going to be faced with? And so if it happens, we pray for the grace of God. But, you know, listen, as you are a faithful steward, keep the kingdom separate. Do you know how insignificant America is compared to the kingdom of God? It is a drop in the bucket. as one eye drop of water in a five-gallon bucket. Go find it if you can. What difference did it make in the bucket? That is how significant the kingdom of God is. And the kingdom of men, no matter how much they're beloved or hated, will ever stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. So listen, 
pray, be a faithful steward of your citizenship, do all that, but you are a, a citizen of the kingdom of God first, and God has said, nothing is going to stop my church. I'm going to build my church, and hell itself will not be able to stop it. And we have 2,000 years of experience to see that. And as has often been noted, sometimes, oftentimes, the church is at her best when she is in the fire. When she is trying to be chained. When she is trying to be limited. Because it's just like the power of God just keeps pressing forth further and further. But you know, whatever happens to the church, we have little influence upon it one way or the other. But what we do with the gospel, that's in our hands. That is in our hands. And we can and should be walking faithfully. But understand this. The gospel is not chained. You might want to read Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, for some special assignment homework there. Look at them when they tried to stop the gospel. Look what happened. Look how the church responded. So in verse 10, moving on, um, Paul just contrasts the the present suffering with the eternal is kind of what we've been talking about. But he says, therefore, I endure all things. If you're a note taker, if you like to highlight and underline, how about that? I endure all things. That's quite a statement, isn't it? For the sake of the elect. I mean, what's going to motivate a person to go through everything negative? I mean, it's not like I endure all the blessings for the sake. It's I endure all these trials and hardships and difficulties why? What would cause a person to do that? Because of the elect, because of the church, because of the people that are sitting around you. Because of you. There are individuals, there are brothers and sisters that are willing to go through anything to help you hear the gospel and then be a fully developed gospel believer. That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The goal of all of us should be for the well-being of other people's faith and soul and their development. Again, I know that some are going to take this one way or another, and that's fine. I just can't, I can't deal with that anymore. Here, here, here's the thing. We've gone through COVID, and we've done all the rest. Some have chosen to uh, worship at a distance and stay plugged in differently than coming every week. I am not making a statement about that. They, they, they have maintained fellowship. They've maintained the word of the Lord and even um, ministry through some other means. So I'm not talking about just whether you're in the building or out of the building. But I'm talking about those who just in this season have just said, eh, church, eh, who needs it? And have just walked away from church altogether. And I know every one of us in here knows people like that that have left the church. They're not engaged in the church in some other way or format. They're just gone from the church of Jesus Christ. Because for whatever reasons, you know, the government said so, or because pressure from work or pressure from family. I don't know. I don't know. What could possibly push you away from Jesus Christ? I hope the answer is nothing. I'll endure all things for the sake of the elect. And some have just said, well, I don't need to be at church. I don't need that. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm developed. Well, what about this mentality right here? What about this heart that says, I will go through anything that I might help my brothers and sisters, the elect, develop their faith, hear the gospel, and, and, and develop into full glory in their walk with Jesus Christ. And this is the problem because for a lot of people, that's not even a priority. It's not even on the radar any longer. But for Paul, it's like, man, I'll go through anything 
I'll go through anything. I will endure all things for the sake of the elect. I hope this is the heart that we all have. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we have that mentality and sometimes we don't. But the Lord is good to redirect us and pull us in and say, wait a minute. Endure all things. Eternal glory is what we're after. That's, that's where our focus is. Something that's going to last forever. Not something that's going to pass away. I, to me, verse 10 so challenges the priorities of Troy Warner's life. It so challenges the kinds of things that I like to go through or be willing to go through. And for some of us, we're like, well, I'd be willing to die. Let's take die off the list for a moment. Let's throw in inconvenience. Because it seems like a lot of times we're a lot more willing to die than we are to be, will, to be inconvenienced or to suffer or to have to give up something of our time or our energy or our creativity or our, our, our finances. And for Paul, it's like, man, I, this is such a high priority. Church is such a high priority. I'm willing to go through anything for it. And that is the attitude that I believe all of us should have for the church of Jesus Christ. For those that are sitting around, like, well, I don't know them. You don't have to know them. Your Savior knows them. Philippians 2.17, when Paul was again imprisoned, it was not this imprisonment, but he wrote Philippians from prison as well. He was a frequent flyer to prisons. I mean, all kinds of miles there. Um, and so he wrote this. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Being poured out as a drink offering, many believe this is a, a reference to having your head chopped off and all your blood being spilled out. He says, if that's what's going to happen, if they're going to take my head from me, I'm going to be poured out as a drink offering. But what's it, what does he say? Oh, I'm glad. And I rejoice. If this is going to help you in your walk with the Lord, if this is happening for um, sacrifice and service to your faith, if me dying is going to help you, then I say, thank you, Jesus. I rejoice that I'm being able to be used like that in somebody else's life. I mean, Paul has such a high view of the church and the development of brothers and sisters in Christ and others coming into it that he was willing to lay down his life. Where did he get that from? His Savior. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is how Jesus lived his life. He was other-centered. Paul was other-centered. And we need to be other-centered for the glory of the gospel in their life. To see a brother or sister grow and mature in their faith, to help them along, to encourage them in any way, this is, should be such a priority in our life. I mean, listen, we're, I'm, it's not as if we are like in desperate mode and we don't have people serving, but there ought to be a waiting list to get involved in serving at the church of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a waiting list to go and teach the next generation of kids. There ought to be a waiting list. Can I do anything? Can I even be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord? Does that sound like something from Scripture? I, just let me open the door. That's, I mean, just let me touch it. That's all I need to do. If I can just be close. But so often what happens is there's almost a begging and a pleading. I mean, so you've probably gone to some churches. They're so desperate for help. You showed up and you put your kids in the in the 
Sunday school classroom. Next week, you're on the list to teach. Like, how did that happen? Well, you put your kid in here. If you put your kid in here, you sign up. Oh, I guess I'm teaching next week. But, you know, we won't do that to you, by the way. You're like, are we signed up? No, you're not signed up, okay? Actually, it's, it's not easy to become a Sunday school teacher. You, you know, we want to know who you are and what you believe and what your commitment is to Christ and this body of believers. We're not going to just throw anybody in there. But, you know, th- this should be the mentality. It's like, I am willing to go through anything to serve the body of Christ. But we, so often, rather than being other-centered, what is the issue that we often deal with? We all have to deal with it. It's being what? Self-centered. The focus is on me. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, it's interesting you talk about finding life because I was trying to find who I am. Don't do that. It'll scare you to death when you find yourself. It's going to ruin everything in your life, okay? Go find Jesus and go give yourself away. The problem that we have is that we are self-centered people and we have so many ways to serve self in the country and the time that we live in that we can get obsessed with self. I mean, we notice the slightest little change in our life. I mean, the temperature's off two degrees. I'm uncomfortable. What's wrong with this church, you know? It's like nothing's wrong with the church. Somebody likes it cold, you like it hot. Yeah, I mean, we, and we can just get so focused on things that it dominates us. And you know what happens when you become so focused on your own self? You're going to hate life. You're not going to find out what it means to live. Go give yourself away, Jesus said, and then you're going to find out what living's really like. Do we believe him? Are those just nice little, you know, poetic sayings that our Savior drops here and there, and we can say them, but we don't really need to live them out, and there's probably not a whole lot of truth to it? I don't think that's what he intended. I think he intended that we would take his words and we would treasure them. Something that's finer than gold, finer than the, the best treasure ever, and that we would take these things and we would walk them out and we would live them out. Don't find yourself Go give yourself away. And when you do that, then you're going to find life. We move into the second half of this passage. And Paul um, introduces, presumably, what was a well-known saying and a Christian you know, early poem that was being circulated. As Paul writes, um, he says, this is a faithful saying. I take this to mean that this is something that is said and is faithful, and you probably heard of it. And so he He gives it to us. He says, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So in the first uh, verse, verse 11 and part of verse 12, God gives some promises of blessing to our faith, right? If you do these things, you're going to experiencing, experience these blessings, these wonderful things. And the first one is, if we died with him, we shall live with him. Kind of hearkening back to the resurrection that we talked about, that Peter, that Paul said, don't forget about this. You know, we, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow the Lord. But in dying, we, as Jesus said, you find life. You live. We die with him. We, we deny ourselves. We deny living for the uh, other purposes, and we, in a sense, 
are put into that, that grave with him when we come to faith. But, but we also are going to live with him. And we're going to see this illustrated here tonight, right before our eyes. We're going to see people that are going to come up and they're going to be baptized. And we're going we're to place them in a watery grave, symbolizing the way in which they have died to themselves. But when they come up out of the water, they're coming up out of, the new, out of that, that grave to live a new life. And so this is how we live our life, but this is also a picture of the eternal life that we're going to receive. Those who would say, well, I just don't know if it's worth it. This whole Christianity thing and living and denying yourself, oh, it's worth it. It is, the payoffs are amazing. And so one day we will be with the Lord. And he says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. So again, something else that Paul talked about in those opening verses of our study was endurance. And he says, I'm thinking, as Paul thought about endurance, he says, I'm going to reign with him. All right, I'm in prison. All right, I've been beaten with rods. All right, they throw me in jail in almost every town I go to. Okay, I've been, you know, robbed by thieves, you know, on the road. I've had shipwrecks. You know, and and just, if I can just, like, take a second and just go off for a second. You know, can you imagine being the Apostle Paul, coming out of one town, having preached the gospel, you're beaten with rods, and you're leaving, and on the next town, and you get robbed? I mean, what... I'll just be honest. In my mind, I'd be like, really, Lord? I mean, you couldn't like at least stop a, a single robber right now? I'm, this is your money, by the way. And this is not effective use of time or resources. I don't know what you're going to do now. But I mean, there would be this thought of like, how could you let this happen? Shipwreck? <laughs> you, you can't even keep a boat together? I mean, these are your seas, by the way. But we never hear Paul sticking his finger in the face of God like that. Instead, he says, I endure all things for the sake of the life. I'm willing to go through anything. Shipwreck, imprisonment, beaten with rods, hunger, sleeplessness, all of those things. From the big to the small, I'm willing to endure. And he says, having endured, we shall also reign with him. Oh, we may suffer in this lifetime. and We may go without. And we may have those that walk away. And we may have connections and relationships and opportunities they're all spoiled because of our faith in Jesus. But think that you lost anything. Because if you endure in this life, you're going to reign in the next. You know, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Yeah, that's a lot. I and mean, that's not like inherit, you know, one thing. Inherit one experience. You're going to get this whole thing. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. I do not fully understand this inheritance. I admit it. The Bible talks about it all the time. It is going to be a wonder, a wonder and an experience to understand what level of influence and what kind of place we're going to have over this creation. But the Bible talks about how we are going to rule and how we are going to reign with him. Even to the church of Laodicea, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What do you think? Is it worth enduring a little bit in this life? Is it worth going through some trials and hardships and some disappointments and some difficulties? Is it worth living a life of, of without in order to get this life that's going to come? I mean, again, it says this, that he will grant us to sit with him on the throne as a father granted him the right to sit on the throne. Go look in the mirror and read that verse. You're going to have a hard time believing it. Like you are going to sit on a throne. 
like Jesus Christ, because his father gave him the throne and Jesus is again. You're going to be like, oh, really? Yeah, really. And so what is it that we're worried about losing out on? Because whatever we give up or whatever we think we give up, it's going to last about this long. And then we have all of eternity in the presence of the Lord. So in this ancient Christian poem, he talks about some of the blessings that come to our faith. But in verse, the end of verse 12 and verse 13, we receive a warning of faithlessness. So he warns about faithlessness. There's a, there's a promise of faithfulness, and now he's going to warn against faithlessness. He says at the end of verse 12, if we deny him, not ourselves, but if we deny Jesus, he also will deny us. He says, if you're unwilling to confess my name, then I'm going to be unwilling to confess your name before the Father. If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And here we read it again. If you deny me, I'm going to deny you. See, the idea of universalism is not taught in Scripture. The idea that everybody's going to be, in the end, will just be in, in the presence of God is not, no, it's not. I mean, this is not here. We find that if you deny Christ, if you reject Christ, then you reject life. And he's not going to get you in a headlock and drag you into heaven and say, I know you don't want to come, but I'm going to bring you anyway. He will, he will allow that denial of yours to stand, and he will not drag you in. That's a pretty sober statement. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Maybe he's thinking about those two guys we talked about. There in verse 17, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Maybe he's thinking about their denial. He's like, these guys have it coming. That's kind of sobering to think about those that were around the things of God. They touched the things of God, and yet they now were in denial, like Judas, denying the Lord. And he was denied by the Lord. So a sober warning for, faithless, uh, for, for denial. Now, in verse 13, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So there are two ways in which this passage, this, this verse 13, is interpreted. Some interpret it in uh, a flow of thought coming out of verse 12, and that it still has that negative aspect to it. We are faithless. He remains faithful. In other words, you denied him. He'll be faithful to his word. He's going to deny you. There, there are negative promises that God is faithful to, right? Think about the children of Israel when they were coming into the promised land and the, the blessings were, were shouted from one mount and the curses were shouted from another. If you follow me, you're going to be blessed. If you don't follow me, the nations will judge you. Did the nations judge Israel? Yes, they were faithless and God was faithful to his word to bring judgment. So this is one way that, that many will take it is that this is a continuing thought. of the, In other words, if the denial and faithlessness are the same in verses 12 and 13, then this is a statement that the Lord will be true to the promises that says judgment will come. God will be faithful to that. People are faithless. He's, gonna be, he's not going to change his mind about it. He's not going to say, you know what, I'll forget it. I'm not going to judge. No, he's going to be faithful to his word, and judgment is going to come. So if denying and faithlessness are the same act, then it's, they're both kind of negative, right? There's judgment will come against those who do that. But not everybody takes 
the denial in verse 12 and the faithlessness of verse 13 as the same act. I would venture to say, and I'm not going to do a poll here, most of you take it differently. Most of you have probably prayed this prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you that when we are not faithful, that you still remain faithful. But if we're taking this in a negative sense, that's kind of an interesting verse to pray, right? It's like, oh, wait a minute. Lord, I know that when I sin, you're going to judge me. Thank you. I mean, I don't think that's really what we're, we're thinking when we quote this verse. So others take this faithlessness in verse 13 to be a different act, a different kind of failure than that of denial of verse 12. The best way and the easiest way for me to kind of work this out is think of Judas denying and think of Peter not being faithful. And so you have, both of them are, are, are sinful, both of them are missing the mark, but one of them is kind of like a final statement of I'm done with Christ, whereas the other one is I come up short in my walk with the Lord. And, um, and so which is it? It can be taken. I mean, Paul wrote it one, to mean one way, that's for sure. Um, you know, so I guess it's just we'll have to debate it out. I don't know. But here's what is important is that you don't think that you can be faithless and you can live however you want to and that it does not matter to God. He's still faithful. In other words, God is handcuffed by his faithfulness and no matter how much you sin, he can do nothing against it because, you know, he can't deny himself. That's not what this verse means. I assure you it's not what it means. Because you have the, even if you take this second statement to mean this in a positive sense that even when I'm, I'm faithless like Peter, he's not done with me. He doesn't cast me off. He remains faithful to his promises to work and move in my life. Even if that is true in verse 13, you still have verse 12 to deal with, which says if you deny him, he will deny you. And that is meant to be a sobering you know, uh, statement. It's meant to be a, a bucket of cold water that just hits our senses and says, wait a minute, how am I living the idea that says, well, when I sin, God's grace you know, abounds. Therefore, let me go ahead and sin that I might receive more grace. What does the word of God say about that? God forbid. Or in other words, to put it in, into you know, my translation, what in the world are you thinking? Are you crazy? Absolutely not. The person who, who can go and deny the Lord and live in sin and say, I don't know what you're talking about, this conviction. I don't think God cares at all. Because I've been living in sin for the last 10 years of my life, and my life has never been better. But you're not a Christian. Which I realize maybe that you don't like me saying that. But let me tell you, if you're a Christian, you can't live in sin and not be bothered by it. Can I get an amen, brothers and sisters? I mean, you know, and we're not just talking about the things that you do out loud and that everybody gets to see. It's that little thought that's in your mind when you're driving down the road. Lord, just like run them off the road or something, Lord. It's like, wait a minute, where's this attitude? Why is there so much anger, you know, the coming up from within me? Lord, forgive me for that. And, and, and the Lord is dealing with even attitudes and secret thoughts of your life. I can't, my secret thoughts don't feel so secret. Do you know what I mean? Can you just like have anger and bitterness towards people and not have the Holy Spirit convicting you of that? Can you decide to be stingy and selfish and walk away? And the Lord not say anything to you about generosity and caring for people? I can't. 
I find that the Holy Spirit is there. Well, you know what? They deserve it. I am not, not going to say I'm sorry to them. There is no way I'm saying sorry to them because it's them. It's their fault. And the Lord's like, oh, so you're not. I mean, and this is the way the Lord comes to us. He never says, you will say you're sorry. You no, know, he comes like this. Oh, so I hear you're not going to say you're sorry. That's right, Lord. I'm not going to say it. Oh, you're not going to say it. I bet you're glad that you heard me say, I forgive you when you said you're sorry, huh? Well, yes, Lord, I am. Well, what do you think? Should you forgive them? Well, Lord, you know I should forgive them. And I, this is how the Christian's life goes, right? You can't sin and be comfortable with it. But to the person who says, oh, I live in sin and it just has zero impact on my life. I'm not bothered by it. Actually, my life seems even a little more peaceable. Well, that's a statement of where you are in your relationship with God. As, as a matter of fact, I can think of nothing more terrifying in life to be okay with sin in my life. That's got to be the scariest position any man or woman can ever end up. If you are still bothered by your actions and your words and your attitudes, you can just on the way out just do a little hoot and holler and say, thank you, Jesus, keep convicting me. Because conviction is one of the most blessed things that you will ever receive in your life. Because it's just evidence that you're his. For whom he loves, he what? He chastens. So how you take verse 13 is going to depend on whether or not you see deny and faithless as the same act or you see them as two different acts. But if we take it as two different acts, one being a Judas-type act of denial, one being a Peter act of faithlessness, let me just remind you and encourage you that the Lord is not done with you. Maybe this week has been a terrible week in your Christian walk. It's been like an epic failure week. It's like, man, I never thought I'd find myself saying, forgive me, Lord, for this. Wasn't it good to know that he's not just there waiting with some big button to press when you mess up and just big doors open up beneath you and you just fall out of his grace? He's there to work with you and to, to bring you to repentance that you might be faithful, that you might in, enjoy the blessings of the Lord. He is not wanting to send you running from him. He wants you to come to him. But don't ever think that you can deny the Lord and it does not matter. It matters. It will have a direct impact on whether or not in that last day, Jesus says, welcome, come in. Or whether he denies you and says, no, I don't know this one. And if you've never made that profession of faith to come to know Jesus and say, I want to follow him, then I urge you to do that. Father, we thank you for the example we find in Scripture. We thank you for Scripture itself. That the Word of God would not be chained is so evident to us as we hold here a book that has been distributed and released around the world time and time again of a man that was sitting in jail. But Lord, that's true for us today in our generation. It's true in our own life, Lord. You want to liberate the preaching of the gospel in our lives, in our day, in this church, in this country. And we pray that we'll be faithful to walk through it, that we will endure all things for the sake of the elect. We'd be willing to go through all kinds of trouble that their salvation might be fully developed with eternal glory. Lord, help us to get the right priorities. Help us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you.